In fact, with his final words on the cross, Jesus surrenders any need to be in control. Our response should be to mimic these same words over our own life. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Our response as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, is to mimic these same words, not just, not, not just from a place of memorization in, 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 like in a rote mechanical kind of way, but from the heart. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my relationships. Father, into your hands I commit my finances. Father, into your hands I commit my future. I commit the timing of my life. I commit the outcomes of my life. And these are words that, that uh, must be declared over our life. Father, into your hands, into your hands, because that's the best place for it to be. I commit my life. I commit all of me. I commit the things that are keeping me up at night. I commit the struggles, the things I don't have answers for. Father, into your hands, I commit this to you now. Hey, so good to be back together uh, today. We are finishing a teaching series we've been in uh, for quite a while now called Famous Last Words. Uh, it's a teaching series that has led us all the way up to the week of Easter, uh, which is a, a pretty big week uh, in Christianity, the most important week in all uh, of Christianity. This week, um, and believers all over the world are going to gather to remember uh, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We are no different, right? We're going to be doing this as well. Huge week uh, around the world, big week for us too as a church. want to just encourage you. Uh, as the announcements already mentioned, just to, to be a part of what's going on this week, whether it's Wednesday night, uh, bringing your kids out for that shine event, real intentional Easter event for our kids. Friday night uh, is going to be uh, incredible as we remember the Lord's death and, and all of the implications that that has on us. And then next Sunday, the party starts, uh, two services, invite somebody. This is that one time a year um, where uh, you can invite somebody to church and there's like a 99% chance they'll say yes. Uh, you know, most people are inclined to, to, uh, to say yes to an invitation on Easter than just about any other time of the year. And uh, we don't just, um, we just want to invite people just so that we can feel better, but we really believe that, um, that the message of Jesus is true and that it still changes lives today, that the gospel is still good news. And so if there's somebody in your life, a friend, um, family member, neighbor, somebody that you know that you think could really, really benefit from uh, uh, the, uh, what we're going to be doing here next week and celebrating Easter, just bring them along uh, and, and tell them, hey, um, uh, you know, worst case scenario, you just get some good food. So, uh, you know, do what you can to, to, to bring some people here next week. It's going to be a great time. Uh, in this series, we have been looking at the death of Jesus specifically. Um, we have been looking at you know, uh, what he said at the end of his life and why he said it. Really looking at the, the, the final seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross uh, before he gives up his spirit and dies, his famous last words, so to speak. Now, in case you're unaware, we have a pretty strong conviction around here that Jesus is the most important person who has ever lived, right? Uh, his... His life, uh, his existence, literally splits history in half. So, you know, no matter what you believe about the guy, you can't deny his significance. Am I right? Like, in fact, uh, I've shared this before, I think, but, but in 2013, Time Magazine uh, listed out uh, the 100 most influential people in, in all of history, and somewhat surprisingly, they gave Jesus the top spot, uh, just ahead of of uh, Napoleon, Muhammad, Aristotle, Alexander the Great. Now, in terms of uh, global widespread influence, that's not a terrible list to be on if that's what you're going for, right? That's sort of the who's who. Um, you know, that's, 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 a, that's a pretty pretty strong list to be on. But when you really look at this article and you look at what Time Magazine is acknowledging, what they are admitting, they're essentially saying that without question, Jesus of Nazareth has single-handedly changed the course of human history Right, that it's that it's undeniable, and and I think that what they're really getting at in this story, in this article, is 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 this acknowledgement that something must have happened a really long time ago that is still impacting us today. That that's it's essentially the 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 admission, right? Like that we know that we don't know exactly what happened. We're not sure what took place, but what we know is that something happened a long time ago, and it's still impacting our life today. It's still impacting 
the world today. Um, no surprise to you, but I would contend that 2,000 years later, the cross of Jesus is still as relevant today as it was then, still as relevant now as ever. And this is kind of what this teaching series has been about, like really looking at the cross. Because when it comes to Jesus' life, I want you to catch this thought. When it comes to, to, to Jesus' life, the cross is perhaps the most important event in the life of the most important person who has ever lived. Perhaps the most important event in the life of the most important person who has ever lived. And yet sometimes we can just become so familiar with the cross. You know, if you've been in church for any length of time, really, like you become very familiar with the cross. It's like, you know, our, our, uh, our you know, a basic core stuff that we teach, it, it doesn't change. Like we don't have like new material. You know, for 2,000 years, it's like it's the cross. It's the resurrection. You know, it's Jesus, the resurrected Lord of human history. And and so if you've been in church for any length of time, you can start to become pretty familiar with the cross. You can start to feel like maybe you know uh, all that there really is to know about the cross. You can assume maybe that you've mastered all the theological implications of the cross. And then we, what happens is we can start to sort of lose the awe and the wonder that we're intended to have when it comes to the cross. We forget oftentimes, I think, about how important it really is to see ourselves in the story of the crucifixion. That it's not just a historical event from thousands of years ago, but that it's a, it, it's a story that, that, that I uh, am a part of. In fact, in 1633, famous painter Rembrandt, uh, he painted an image of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Painted some 1,600 years after the crucifixion. It's a famous painting called The Raising of the Cross. You can see it here. Uh, right here, and, and it's tough to see all the detail just in, in the, with how dark the background is, but really famous painting uh, called the, uh, the, the Raising of the Cross. And in this painting, if you, I don't know if you, how well you can see it, but Jesus is surrounded by lots of people in the background, like the usual suspects. There's the Roman soldier in there. Uh, I think he's like down here uh, at, at the foot. Then there's like a religious leader there, and then there's like a crowd of onlookers uh, that you can see as, as you zoom in. And when you get closer and zoom into the picture, you can see this, this next image. What you find out, what you notice right away is that at the feet of Jesus, Rembrandt actually painted himself into the story. So here's Rembrandt, right? Like, I don't know if you knew this, but in like first, the first century, you know, the fedora wasn't necessarily like in style yet. Right? So he like, doesn't belong in the, sto in, in the painting of the crucifixion, but he paints himself into the story. He depicts himself as one of the people most responsible for crucifying Jesus. He's essentially communicating that the crucifixion of Jesus isn't just a historical event from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Rembrandt, in this famous painting, is communicating that this is my story. This is my story. And I would say, just like Rembrandt, if, if you're taking notes today, that we must never become so familiar with the ancient historical story of the cross that we forget the part that we all have played in putting Jesus on the cross. It's not just an event from a long time ago that, 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 that you know, we, we acknowledge was a big deal. Like we are leaning into the cross in this series on purpose because the cross is my story and the cross is your story. And like Rembrandt acknowledged in this famous painting, like we are the reason why this story even exists. Like it is our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It's our sin that crucified him. And so what I've been wanting to do in this series, you know, we've been in it for a long time now through the entire season of Lent, is I, I've, wanted, I've wanted you to really insert yourself into the story of the cross so that you don't just look at it from a distance you don't just look at the cross as something kind of a, from a, a, a long time ago or from a different, different time period or, or, or where you only understand it theologically. But I've wanted you in this series to really engage with the cross up close and personal, to really comprehend what it is that Jesus said to us from the cross. And so this morning, I want us to look at the famous last words Jesus says before he dies. This is the last of his seven statements. So, you know, Jesus has his last, famous last words, but it's like there's seven of them. And so you're like, okay, well, maybe this is it, you know, and he keeps speaking. Well, this is actually it before he dies. These are his last words before he gives up his spirit and dies. I want you to think for a minute about the significance of Jesus, okay? 
Think about like who he is and think about all that he taught. If you've read the Gospels, you know, like, man, man, the guy just had so many amazing things that he said. And so think for a minute of all the things he ever taught. Then think about how much time he spent with his disciples pouring into them, especially at the end of his life as he knew that the cross was drawing near. Think of all the words that he has ever spoken. And here he is at the end of his life with his final words. What is it that Jesus wants to leave us with? In Luke 23, we see these words. It says in verse 44 that it was about the sixth hour, which, which the way they, they measured time back then tells us that it's about noon, actually. They would, they would measure starting hour by hour once the sun came up. So it's, it's sometime midday, actually, and, and it becomes dark. Darkness came over the land. It's an odd time for darkness to come over the land. Until the, until the ninth hour. That's a, long, that's, a, that's a really long time for it to be dark. Uh, think about how disorienting and crazy that might be. The sun stopped shining. So it wasn't just that like the sun hid behind a cloud or something like that. The sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last the centurion, or the, or the Roman soldier, seeing what, is, what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Another translation says, surely he was the son of God. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, look at this, they beat their breasts and went away. Right? They, they, they are proud of their accomplishment. They have killed Jesus. Right? They, they, they are pleased with what they have seen. See, like I told you he wasn't the Messiah. In verse 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So here in Luke 23, Luke tells us that with his work on the cross now fully finished, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, right, that he willfully surrenders his spirit to the Father just as he has willfully surrendered his body to death on the cross. But what I like about this story and what immediately just pops out to me as I, as I read this is, is that, you know, Jesus doesn't whimper this statement. Jesus doesn't say it through gritted teeth. He's, he's not like, like just sort of getting it out. Like, like it says that he, he, he declares this. He says this with a loud voice. Now, the New Testament commentary gives us a little bit more insight into like what this would have meant. So it, it says, for Jesus to have cried with a loud voice as Luke says, would mean that he had to muster nearly all of his remaining strength just to accomplish a loud cry. Crucifixion kills its victims by suffocation. The arms and legs become too weak to support the breathing. Okay, so Jesus is no doubt weakened by all of the beating he has taken, by his journey to the cross, but he is weakened there on the cross as he's been crucified. He is struggling to breathe, this is a very, very intentional thing Jesus does. He's not, he's not on the cross with lots of strength to be able to cry with a loud voice. He is mustering all that he has to cry to the Father. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In this final famous last word from the cross, it shows us that Jesus gives up his life both when he wanted to and how he wanted to. Jesus is in charge. Remember, no one took his life from him, right? He gave it up. He laid it down of his own accord, John 10, 18, right? He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down and the power to, to, uh, to, to uh, pick it back up again. And he lays his life down how he wants to and when he wants to, when his work that he came here to do is finally finished. Really good thought. Uh, for us this morning, uh, if you're taking notes. Jesus is not a victim we should pity, but a conqueror we should admire. Now, obviously, Jesus is, is, is mistreated. He is mocked. He is, he is not respected in any way. People are spitting on him. They are saying the worst that you could say to Jesus. And, and there is elements of this story where we do feel pity. We do feel sorry. We, we do feel saddened in the, the realities around the crucifixion. But may no, make no mistake, like he's not a victim here that we should pity. Meaning like Jesus knew what he was doing. 
He says, no one can take my life from me. He said, you know, we, we think in this story, all these people are murdering him and killing him, but only because he's allowing it to happen, right? He knows what has to happen. Jesus is a conqueror we should admire, and he goes to the cross of his own free will. No one makes him do this. And there, hanging on the cross of his own free will, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does this mean? Why are these the words he would say at the end? What does this really mean? Like, these are famous words. We're familiar with these words. But, like, why these words? Why at the end? You know, when you think about somebody on their deathbed, and, you're, and, and maybe many of you have experienced this, being with a loved one or somebody as they're about to take their last breath, I mean, as you pay attention to what they say at the end, those are big words. They understand, like, these are big words. Like, I, I, I may not get to say anything else after this. And so these are big words for Jesus, too. And he, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does this mean? And so to commit something means to entrust or to deposit. So think of when you deposit your money at the bank. What are you doing, right? You are trusting the bank to take care of, of your assets, up to 250000 at least, right? At least that's FDIC insured. To entrust something means that there is something very valuable of yours that is being held and protected by someone else on your behalf. So Jesus is entrusting, he's committing his spirit to the Father, that the Father will, will, will protect it. He'll hold this uh, entrust on his behalf. He's entrusting his spirit to the Father, depositing, depositing his spirit. He's committing his spirit to the Father here in this story. So think about this famous statement from the cross that many of us are familiar with but perhaps have, have never really engaged with. This statement is an act of complete surrender to the Father. It's an act of complete trust. And this is his final declaration. Father, into your hands, into your hands, not my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. Look at this thought with me uh, on the screen here. You see, in, in the Garden of Eden, Adam believed the lie that you can't trust God. That's essentially what got him into a mess can't trust God. God's lying to you. God, he just doesn't, God just doesn't want you to be, to be happy. He doesn't want you to know as much as he knows. He believed the lie that you can't trust God. But here is Jesus at the complete opposite at the end of his life with his final words communicating complete trust. He's, he, he's with a loud voice declaring, Father, I trust you. Father, I trust you. Think about the polar opposite of what Adam does in the garden and what Jesus does at the end of his life as the new Adam that Paul talks about. Adam believed the lie, right, that he can't trust God. He can only trust who? Himself. He can only trust himself. And Jesus is saying here something completely different. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says, I trust you, Father. I trust you. The final statement from the cross still holds weight with us today because it remains extremely hard 2,000 years later for us to surrender and entrust ourselves to other people. We see this act of Jesus on the cross, and it's not just an ancient story that we can't relate to. All of us can relate to because it still remains difficult now to trust our lives to anyone else, to trust other people. It means very, very difficult. In general, like we are not a very trusting people today. Highly skeptical and suspicious of just about everyone, especially those in leadership. We just do not trust them to do what is right. And this is not just the president or like senators in Washington. What's funny about it is we're suspicious of this in like lesser positions of power, whether it's like city council members or school board members. It like does not matter. Like because no one is off limits because nobody is trustworthy. That's at least the, the narrative or the belief system that so many of us have. Interesting fact, if you're a millennial, according to the Harvard Business Review, you are a part of the least trusting generation in history. Only 19% of millennials trust other millennials. Interesting thought. Can you blame them? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, we're not trusting you there. So think about this. Our society is becoming more and more polarized, which you know, more and more broken, more and more suspicious, more and more selfish. So the modern person, of which you and I are, doesn't feel like they need to trust anyone they, they do, in fact, they do everything they can to make sure that they are self-sufficient. That's like one of the, the, the greatest values in, in uh, like the modern culture right now is to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining, to where you don't have to put 
anything in anyone else's hands. You don't have to depend on anyone else. And so this is kind of the, 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 the culture we're in. This is the reality of the world we live in right now. This is like the dominant theme in secular culture, to like to be self-dependent, self-sufficient. But then, then you start to like move yourself into the church, into like religious circles, and the religious person does something, um, it's a similar spirit, it's just done differently. Like the religious person puts trust in their own performance. Their trust is essentially in themselves to save themselves. Like, like, like you know, they're trusting in their good behavior, trusting in, in their ability to like, like do the right things and, and to please God with, with like, you know, good behavior. Again, taking matters into our own hands, trust being put in our own performance, not in the performance of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is, is, is completely different here, right? We see him breathing his last breath and saying these last words, and what is he doing? Essentially, he's putting his entire being, his whole trust in the Father. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing on the cross, and it's an invitation for us to do the same. The question we often wrestle with is this, who can we trust? Who actually can we trust? Like, should we trust, you know, the media? Should we trust politicians? What about, I mean, what about religious leaders even today? Or which ones? What about our parents? What about our spouses? You think about with the amount of divorce that takes place today, there's evidence that, that many people are not able to trust their spouse, actually. Even on our currency, it says, in God we trust, doesn't it? But do we? Do we actually trust God? We seem much more willing to trust in money than we do in God. The result of a society, look at this, filled with so much mistrust is people who only trust themselves. This, this, is, this is the result of a society filled with all of this suspiciousness, all of this mistrust. Like, like I, don't, I don't think that you know what's right. I, it's, it's this, uh, it, it leads us to a place of like only trusting ourselves. I can only trust me where we live as if it's all up to us. Like how can we hand over our life, our heart, our emotions, like our future to other people? How can we trust other people with these kinds of things? They're not trustworthy, I'm suspicious of everyone, so I'm going to trust myself. And this is the lie, right, that, that ultimately Adam believed in the garden that God is not to be trusted. And what happens is it produces in us, it produces in people what is called the idol of control, if you're taking notes. And let me just say this, because I'm not here to like harp on anybody, because I just, I just saw some, whether you realize it or not, some bodily reactions to that word. I was like, I saw some looks on your face, like, oh no, he's talking to me. Um, every one of us is prone to this, because we want control no matter what. Everyone is, is prone to this. I'm prone to this, like, like every single one of us, like we want to be in control. But here's what happens oftentimes. Uh, in the end, instead of gaining control, we find ourselves controlled primarily by fear. Instead of actually gaining the kind of control we desire and want and think we have to have, the reason why we kind of grab at everything to hold on to, like in the end, it's like, like we don't even realize what happened. We became entrapped. We became controlled primarily by fear. And so let me just give you some signs of the idol of control that might be showing itself up in your life. Uh, number one is we try to control the timing. Here's a sign of the idol of control in your life if you try to control the timing. So this is where we do not trust God to work out the details of our life, just flat out. And so we take the timing of our agenda into our own hands. We manhandle things. We, we want to get it um, on our timeline. We don't want to wait. We live in a culture of the immediate. Anybody? And the result can be that we don't trust that God's timing is better than ours. If any of you are familiar with, uh, you know, the, the older movie now, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, do you remember uh, Veruca? Remember Veruca in the, in, in the movie, right? She, what does she want? She wants a golden goose. And when does she want it? She wants it now. But I want the golden goose now, Father. Right? She doesn't want to wait. And what happens? She goes down the incinerator, right? Like, well, you know, no patience. We want to control the timing. We want what we want now. Most of us have a very specific script for how we want our life to go. If we're honest with ourselves, like we have this image, this, this script in our mind of how we want things to play out, how we want life to go. And when it doesn't seem to be going that way for the Christian, 
this can create the greatest temptation for compromise in your life. Because we start to take matters into our own hands. We start to feel like life isn't necessarily going exactly like I want it to go. And instead of trusting God, instead of trusting him that he's got a plan and he can figure this out and he knows what he's doing, the greatest temptation for the Christian in these moments is to take control of it ourselves. So look at this thought. Taking things into our own hands doesn't seize our destiny, it sabotages it. Taking things into our own hand doesn't seize our destiny, it sabotages it. I, I, I like the thought, I don't remember where I heard it before, but the right thing at the wrong time is never the right thing. You know, the right thing at the wrong time is never the wrong, or is never the right thing. And so this is what we do, right? We, we, try, to, um, we try to take control of the timing. Anybody ever, ever done this? You ever seen yourself do this? Like, 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 you know, just kind of bypass the process that you think, you know, God would have you take just because you got to have what you got to have. Now, this, another sign is we try to control the outcome. We try to control the outcome. And this is where we'll do whatever it takes to get things to turn out the way that we want them to. A good example of this would be like the, the uh, you know, college admissions scandal. If any of you are familiar with that story in the last several years where parents who had enough money uh, would try to buy their children positions in, in universities, entrance into like elite universities or scholarships that they didn't deserve or didn't qualify for. Why? Because parents with all of the, this power, all this resource, they're trying to control the outcome. They've got an image in their mind, a picture in their mind of how they want their children's life to go. And in some ways, it, it, it's their life too. And they're trying to control the outcome. What's interesting about this is that, is that as bizarre of a story that is, it's like I would never spend half a million dollars to just get my kid into like an elite school. I would never just do that. Like, like and all of us can think that because we're so detached from ever being in a position to do something like that. But I think that every single one of us comes face to face with this, this issue of trying to control the outcome of our life. Too many people fall into this temptation to try to manufacture a life, to try to control a life. And what, what happens is it, it just becomes a form of idolatry, really. What, what it becomes and what it reveals is an addiction that we have to making sure that we get what we want. An addiction to making sure that we get what we want. We are addicted to outcomes, getting what we want out of life instead of surrendering this and saying, God, your outcome, whatever you want for me, I surrender to that. It doesn't have to look the way I want it to look. I want it to look the way you, you desire it to, but so often we get, like, we get tempted, we get drawn into to really taking control of the situation. The third example of the idol of control in our life is when we try to control other people. Any, any of you ever had somebody in your life that's uh, tried to control you? How does that make you feel? Right? It doesn't feel too good, does it? Like, it's a terrible feeling. You ever had somebody, like, try to control you or try to, try to manipulate you to do what they want? most of us have experienced this. Most of us know what it's like to have people treat us this way. But the reality is a lot of us know what it's like to do this to somebody too. Because, because we have to have things go a certain way. We, we struggle to just allow things to sort of play out. And this is where we control and, and manipulate other people to do exactly what we, what we want. And then I'd say the, the, maybe the worst sign, and this is not an exhaustive list in any way, that maybe the worst sign of the, the idol of control is when we try to control God. And this is where we, we, you know, where instead of living our life to do God's will, we want God to live his life uh, to do our will. There's a lot of people in the Christian tradition who are not authentically in a relationship with God. They're just using God to get what they want. And what you find is there are so many people who, who come to church and they, they, they talk about God and they actually have, have a lot of, of good, you know, language and vernacular that they use, you know, in terms of, of, of Christianity and the life. But when it, when push comes to shove and they end up not getting out of life what they really want, like they become very offended with God and many people walk away altogether. And this is, this is kind of where we seek to manipulate God to get what we want. It goes like this, like, God, I'll do this if you do that. You ever, you ever, you ever done that? You ever prayed that way? Okay, God, fine, I'll do this, but like, I want this. Like, and it's, it's like really inappropriate to pray that way. It's really inappropriate to have a heart like that. Really, really the correct posture of our heart should be God, like it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter what it looks like. I trust that you are, you are good. You're a benevolent father. I trust that you give good gifts. I trust that, that you, in, in your great wisdom, know exactly what I need when I need it. And so I'm not gonna try to strong arm God. I'm not gonna try to manipulate him into doing anything for me. I'm gonna surrender my life to him. So much of our willingness to be obedient to God is an attempt to just get what we want. It's not actually from a place of like, of like real surrender or like, God, I can't imagine living in disobedience to you. I will just do whatever you say. Most of it comes from a place, because we learn like the reward system as kids. Like, like if I'm just gonna, if I'm gonna obey my parents, then maybe I'll get like a candy bar today, you know, or whatever it is. And we think this way with God. Like if I do this, I'm gonna get that. And there are rewards in the kingdom. But when it comes to obeying God, that cannot be what motivates our heart. It has to be because he's God because he's good and because we trust him to know what we need. This is basically what happened on Palm Sunday. People trying to control the outcome, people trying to control God in many ways. Jesus is worshiped as king on Palm Sunday, as as Emily mentioned, and, and yet he's crucified less than a week later. His death called for by the same people who worshiped him a few days prior. You know, like, like so, so the issue here is, is all of these people who are, who are you know, yelling and, and you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday. All of them have in their mind who Jesus is. They believe that he is the answer to the prophetic, um, uh, to all the prophecies of the Messiah you know, uh, for, for the last several hundred years. They believe he is their deliverer. They believe he is gonna be their conquering king. And so they are, they are worshiping him as a king as he's entering into the city of Jerusalem. But what they find is that the week doesn't go the way they thought it would. Jesus doesn't like stage a, an uprising. He doesn't, he doesn't seek to overthrow Rome. Like that's not what happened. Like Jesus goes the other way. He, he you know, surrenders his body to death on the cross to like ruthless torture what these people didn't understand is that Jesus didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from their sin. And, and they are completely disillusioned. And so just a matter of a few days later, less than a week later, they've already turned on Jesus and they are calling for his crucifixion because he's, he's not doing for them what they wanted him to or what they thought he would do. Listen, this sounds crazy. And, and we get the, 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 the benefit of hindsight to just be like, what are you people doing and yet so many of us like, like fall into this trap too where God does not do exactly what we want him to do. We get a little bit disillusioned. We're like, man, God, what is going on here? Like, like I thought you would, but you didn't. And many of us, our heart can get twisted and can get, uh, can get weird when, uh, when God does not do exactly what we want to do. We try to control God. Many of us have had times in our life where we're no different than those people who were yelling, crucify him. Now, I'm getting ready to, to, to wind this down. What I want you to do is I want you to start to think about how determined Jesus was at the end of his life to surrender to the Father. Think about his determination. Because, you know, in the Garden of, of, of Gethsemane, Jesus goes there to pray, right? And, and we know that this is a, a, an incredible scene. Uh, there's so much emotion. Jesus is, is I mean, he, his anxiety is an overdrive he's asking the father to take this cup from him. If there's any other way, like, God, can we find another way? Could we find something other than the cross? And then, and then what, does he, what does he do? He surrenders his will. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, yours be done, your will be done. And so we see in the garden that Jesus is surrendering control to the father. And yet over the next 24 hours of his life, he'd be, after he would be betrayed and arrested, facing a corrupt trial, uh, turned on by his closest friends, beaten and mocked and all of this stuff, we find that time after time after time, over the next 24 hours, Jesus would be tempted to take back control. All throughout his journey to the cross, he's tempted to retake control. Like he, he is silent as people are asking him insulting questions. Well, I mean, why not just speak up and defend yourself? Like take back control. Just tell them who you really are. As he's beaten and he's mocked, what do they say? They say, prophesy. Tell us who hits you. Take back control. Like, 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 like don't, don't be surrendered anymore to the Father. Take back control. Show them who you really are. Prove to them. As Jesus is crucified, he's tempted on the cross once again by one of the, the criminals crucified next to him who says, if you're the Christ, 
save yourself and us, tempted again to take back control. And so in, in the 24 hours after giving control to the Father and surrendering his life to, to, to God, he is faced with temptation after temptation after temptation to save himself and to, and to retake control of his life, and yet Jesus never does. He never does. In fact, with his final words on the cross, Jesus surrenders any need to be in control. Our response should be to mimic these same words over our own life. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Our response as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, is to mimic these same words, not just, not, not just from a place of memorization, in, in, in like in a rote mechanical kind of way, but from the heart, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my relationships. Father, into your hands I commit my finances. Father, into your hands I commit my future. I commit the timing of my life. I commit the outcomes of my life. And these are words that, that uh, must be declared over our life. Father, into your hands, into your hands, because that's the best place for it to be. I commit my life. I commit all of me. I commit the things that are keeping me up at night. I commit the struggles, the things I don't have answers for. Father, into your hands, I commit this to you now. And sometimes, I just want to be honest with you, I don't have a chapter or verse for this, but sometimes it needs to be done in a loud voice. Like, I, like sometimes it just has to be in a loud voice. Sometimes like a reserved, quiet voice just will not work Sometimes when you come before the Lord, it has to be, Father, into your hands I commit. And you fill in the blank. Like, this is what it is. God, I can't do this anymore. Father, into your hands I commit my life to you again. Fleming Rutledge says this. She says, the Christian life is lived between my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And into your hands I commit my spirit. Obviously, two statements of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The time where he feels completely abandoned, feels like God has left him, God has turned his back on him. God, where are you? Father, where are you? Think about the, just the difference between him making that statement at the, on the cross, feeling complete abandonment, and then coming to the very end where he says, he says Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Complete trust in, in, in a father who just a little bit uh, earlier he felt abandoned by. You see, the Christian life is this posture that even though it's not going how I want it to go all the time, Father, here I am, I surrender to your will. Into your hands I commit my life. Christian life is lived between my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And into your hands I commit my spirit. Just a little, a little uh, I think, important uh, truth to sort of, sort of uh, share with you quickly here is that I think that there is a big difference between obedience and surrender. It's a big difference between the two. Look at this thought with me. Obedience is a moment-by-moment -moment decision. Surrender is the posture of the kingdom. So with obedience, what happens with obedience is you have to manage it. You manage obedience. Like, like will I obey or will I not? Like, like, will I continue to keep on obeying? Like, like, like obedience is moment-by-moment moment decision. Like, so, meaning, like, I, I, just because I obeyed him last time doesn't mean I'm gonna obey him now. But surrender is different. Surrender is the posture of the kingdom, meaning with surrender, we just start with a yes. It's not a question of, of, of will I say yes or no. We start with a yes. Regardless of the circumstances, I'm surrendered. It's not my will anymore. It's the posture of the kingdom. It, I start with a yes. I begin with a yes it's a posture of letting go because we know that it's not our life anyway. Man, I, could, I, could, I think I could have gotten an amen. Should have got an amen on that. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm gonna close here. You guys can go ahead and come on up. Um, John Ortberg likens the kind of trust that Jesus demonstrated on the cross to that of a tra trapeze artist who has to have complete trust in that other person on the other side to catch them. Right, can you imagine like that level of trust, like letting go of the trapeze bar and, and just like you know, flinging your body in midair, trusting the other person that they're not gonna have like sweaty palms you know, or whatever on that, on that, in that moment? 
Not only do you have to let go, but you have to entrust yourself to that person to catch you. And so he says this, which I think is really, really good. He says, the word trapeze, the little bar between the ropes that a trapeze artist has, has to let go of, comes from the Greek trapeza, meaning table. About the only time it's used in the New Testament is when the writer claims that Jesus gathers his friends around the table, the trapeza, what we now call the communion table and teaches them that he will have to let go of his life for them and that the only way to hang on to one's life is to let go, is to let it go. And then he climbs on the cross and lets go. He hangs above the earth for three hours with his hands stretched out, not moving a muscle. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he breathed. And when he did that, he was saving us and he was teaching us about trust. Here's the leap. God comes to you and says, let go. Will you let go? Will you let go? Will you trust? See, all of this is good and all of this is true. And yet I fully know that preaching a metaphor on surrender is very, very, very easy for me to do. Actually doing it is terrifying. I've preached these, these types of metaphors my entire career. I, I've heard them taught. Really easy to get up here and teach on things like this. It's a whole nother deal to actually live it out. It's terrifying to live it out. Many of you like me, you understand biblical theology. You know how you should live. You know what like God is asking of us. But when you actually have to do the thing, you actually have to do it, you actually have to walk it out, it can be incredibly terrifying. When you actually have to walk by faith, it can be terrifying. But I want, you to, I want you just to listen to something very carefully, and I'm almost done. All of your growth actually happens in doing the thing. All of your growth happens in doing the thing. None of it really happens when you just simply recognize a theological point or a theological position as true. Like, good, like... In other words, what I'm saying is like your growth, your spiritual growth, your maturity doesn't happen when there's just, just only intellectual assent where you, you believe a theological point or position is true. Growth happens when you actually do the thing, when you actually do it. So instead of just believing that you should live by faith or believing that your life should be surrendered to God or believing that you should trust him no matter what, that's not Enough. Growth isn't produced in belief. It's produced when you walk out this stuff, when you live it out, when you actually entrust your life to the God of the universe. You let him call the shots. You really believe that he knows better than you. A lot of people can believe what Jesus is telling us to do from the cross, to surrender to the Father, to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, I commit my life. And yet, many people can still live functionally controlled by their fears of letting go. Like believe it, functionally they're still controlled by their fears of letting go. I would say that too often we leave church with an understanding and even an agreement of the metaphor or the theological position that we were taught. Like most people, I don't have a lot of people who come up to me afterwards just in complete disagreement with what, I, what was taught, you know? Um, I don't know that I'd still be doing what I, what I do. Like if I was getting a lot of disagreements, you know, I'd probably find something else. There are people who disagree with me. Uh, I have had those, but it's not, it's not the norm to just have people as they're walking out the door be like, man, that was, that was, why did you say that? That was terrible. I don't agree with that at all. So the point is that we often leave church, walk out the doors with, a, with an understanding and even an agreement with the metaphor or the theological position that was taught. And yet, Many of us leave and, and don't let ourselves actually do the thing, like actually surrender. Look at what happens. Look what happens with Jesus. When he willingly surrenders his life to the Father, like what, what takes place? The Father raises him back to life as the resurrected Lord of human history. Like that's what happens. He surrenders his life to the Father. The Father raises him back to life. The resurrection doesn't happen without there being a surrendering of his life to the Father. It's the same way with us. 
It's not until we are willing to actually die that we are given resurrection life. It's not until we are willing to let go. It's not until we are willing to surrender that we are actually given resurrection life. And so we have to come to this place of complete and total surrender, everybody. We gotta come to this place. It's not my will. It's your will be done. Into your hands. Commit my spirit. I want you to see this last slide. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I believe that we are to mimic these words with our own lives. And so what would, what would your words say here? How would you fill in the blank? What, what, what kind of thing do you need, to, you need to give to the Lord? What kind of prayer needs to come out of your heart to the Father right now? God, into your hands, I commit my what? Where is it that the idol of control has maybe gotten in and you've stopped trusting in the sovereignty of God? You're relying instead on maybe the sovereignty of self, which so many of us do. Where in your life do you need to say, okay, God, because of what you've done with your son and because of what you've done with the saints throughout history, I'm gonna trust you right now. I'm gonna give you control. I'm gonna lay it down. And let me just tell you, like, if, if you're thinking this morning, as you're like, okay, what would I put into that line? What do I need to put in that line? What does the Holy Spirit prompt me to put in that line? And you're like, it can't be that, it can't be that, it can't be that. It's that. It's that thing. It is, it is that. It's that. I want to encourage you to surrender. It's amazing what God can do with a surrendered life. You know, for seven weeks, we have considered the cross. We've brought it close. And perhaps... It's now your turn to take up your own cross and just surrender to the Lord. Trust him with all of yourself, amen? Would you stand? Would you just bow your heads for a minute here as we close? Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you just settle into this room right now? Would you just move powerfully in here? Yeah, we don't just wanna check off another Sunday of going to church. We come here because we are desperate to meet with you, to encounter the living God in fresh, tangible ways. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just meet with us now. You'd encounter uh, your people here in this room uh, right now. If you're here today and you just acknowledge, Pastor Jordan, there are some things going on in my life. I need to surrender to the Lord. I don't need to know what it is. These are things that God knows. These are things that you can have a conversation between you and him right now, but there is some surrendering that needs to happen. And uh, the idol of control has been all too prominent in your life. And it's time to just say, Father, into your hands, I commit uh, could I just see your hand in here right now? Would you just raise, raise your hand so I can see and I can pray with you? Hands all over the room. Thank you for, for just being honest. I appreciate that. Humbled that you would uh, be vulnerable to show that to me. I want you just to, to, you know, under your breath or internally, I want you just to start to pray that prayer. Father, into your hands I commit. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. The reason why you raised your hand. I want you just to fill in that blank, Father, into your hands, I commit. And just do it. You can say it out loud quietly. You can say it internally. I want it to come from a real deep place in your heart, though. So don't perform. Don't, don't feel like it has to be perfect. Don't perform in any way. Just say, Father, into your hands right now. I just need to commit this. I need to commit that. I'm committing my future. I'm committing my finances. I'm, I'm, I'm committing my fears, all the, all the stuff, God. I'm just giving it over to you right now. Father, into your hands, I commit start to have a conversation with him. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Father, I ask now in this room for just freedom to take place. I pray that you would just set us free, God, from this idol of control, this, this uh, uh, perceived sort of need 
to be able to predict outcomes and know exactly how things are gonna go. I ask God in this room for real freedom to take place, to let go, to surrender, to trust in who you are. And so God, wherever it's getting twisted or getting sideways in our heart, uh, and wherever that's existing in this room right now, God, I just ask Holy Spirit for you to come and to just bring freedom to every person who's raised their hand here in this room saying, God, come and do it. I wanna surrender my life to you in, 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 in a new way, in a way that I haven't for some time. Lord, I ask for there to just to be a, a spirit of repentance in this place, just an acknowledgement of where we've gone wrong, of where we've taken things into our own hands. And so God, I ask that you would just walk with us through this process right now of surrender, of just letting go, of giving you control once again. I thank you for what you modeled for us on the cross. That in your most difficult moment, in your most vulnerable moment, your reaction to that was not to take back control, but it was to surrender even more, even unto death. And so Father, I ask that in this room and in this church, God, there would be such a, man, such a spirit of surrender, of trust, that you really are who you say you are and that you're faithful in so many ways. You're faithful to walk with us and to guide our life and to take us into directions, that man, in, in, in paths and outcomes that we never could have uh, imagined on our own. And so Lord, I, I just, just bring us into that place of letting go right now. I pray the freedom of letting go would happen in this place right now. Just a freedom of letting go. Just, I want you just to imagine whatever it is you've, you've held tightly I want you just to imagine in your mind's eye right now, your fingers just loosening their grip on whatever it is you've held onto tightly. Just let go. There's a spirit of letting go in here right now. There's a grace for letting go right now. And just start to loosen your fingers. Start to let go. Experience the freedom that only comes in really giving God everything that you are. In Jesus' name.